Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the promise you have given to us in Jesus Christ that you will send the Holy Spirit to your children and make your home with them. We pray as we have been bold to call you, Father, that we may in these moments become conscious of a fatherly and gracious visitation in this room and into our hearts and by your word. And so we pray that you would lead us from the written word to the living word, our Savior Jesus Christ, and that from him together we may learn as your children, as his loved ones, and as the people of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So teach us, we pray, from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you have Bibles with you today, I'd like to ask you to turn to two places in the letter to the Hebrews. First of all, two verses in Hebrews chapter 8, and then to turn backwards to some verses in Hebrews chapter 2. And again, let me say what a great joy and delight it's been to have been here at the Cathedral of the Advent in Birmingham over these last couple of days. Uh, I may say that your staff have treated me royally in those days. This has given me an entirely new uh, perspective on the celebration of the season of Lent. And uh, it has been such a a wonderful season that uh, I'm tempted to take it back into world Presbyterianism. Now, very occasionally, you were always given a row for doing this at school. You remember, very occasionally, it's a good thing to look at the back of the book before you turn to the front of the book, because often the answers are to be found in the back of the book. And that's why I want to read these two verses from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews is by no means the easiest book in the New Testament to understand, and uh, so like complex and difficult sermons, it's very helpful when the author stops and says, now this is what I'm talking about here. And this is exactly what he does. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's referring, of course, to the priestly ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ. And about that ministry, back in chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, all belong to one family. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If I were to give you each a three by five card and ask you to write something on it and hand it in at the end of the service, I wonder how you would uh, respond to the question, so what happened in there? What happened in there? When I was a very young Christian in the Sunday school class I was in every single Sunday, we would open the Sunday school class by singing the same words. Jesus, stand among us in thy risen power. Let this time of worship be a hallowed hour. And sometimes, of course, youngsters would wonder, what does it mean when we ask Jesus to stand among us? Did he not promise, after all, that where two or three gathered in his name, he would be there in the midst of them? Or to put the question a little more pointedly, if Jesus is with us in our worship services, or as the New Testament more accurately would put it, when we are with Jesus in our worship services, what is it that Jesus is doing? He's not surely just standing there. If we sing Jesus, stand among us in your risen power, what is it that we anticipate that Jesus will do? And the letter to the Hebrews written to people, as you will remember, who no longer had the privilege of worshipping in the Jerusalem temple. That's a hugely significant thing. Now they worshipped in one another's front rooms. Now there were no vestments. Now there was no choir. Now there was essentially no liturgy. The old style had been taken from them. And all they had was these very modest places of worship. And the author of Hebrews is seeking to help them understand that what they have now is better. Better to have Jesus without the temple because he's the fulfillment of the temple than to have the temple without Jesus. Amazing how difficult it sometimes is for people, people in church to understand that. That Jesus is always better even if you've just got him on your own. And the author of Hebrews, particularly in those words that we read in chapter 8, verse 2, when he says, now, 
This is the point I'm really trying to make here. This is the point of everything I'm saying. He says, what we now have, if I can retranslate his words, what we now have is a liturgist in the true temple. There are different words used in the New Testament for priest. But the word that's used here in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 means the priest who conducts the liturgy what youngsters nowadays call the worship leader. And what he's wanting us to understand, and this is so significant, isn't it, for our worship services and our gathering together, what he wants us to understand is that when Christian people gather together, Jesus himself is the liturgist. Jesus himself is the worship leader. Sometimes in different parts of the country I find young men bouncing up to me in their church and saying, I am the worship leader here in the church. And there is a little bubble goes up above my head as in the cartoons that says, Sonny boy, you may be the band leader here, but Jesus is the worship leader. And what I want you to notice very briefly this afternoon, and you can think about this later on, I hope frequently in worship services in the future, is what this second chapter of Hebrews, which tells us more about this priestly ministry of Jesus, leads us to anticipate Jesus is doing whenever his people come together for worship. There are four things. The first is this. When we come together like this, or on the Lord's Day, on other occasions, Jesus is gathering us as his family and bringing us into the presence of his heavenly Father. Do you notice those words? They actually are a quotation from the 8th chapter of Isaiah when Isaiah is speaking about himself and his family. And the author applies them to the Lord Jesus. Jesus stands among us and he says to his Father, Father, here am I and the children you have given me. One of our sons graduated from a university in another part of the world where the entire graduation service was all in Latin. It was a collegiate university, and so the students were graduated in their colleges. And in the graduation ceremony, the master or principal or dean of the college would lead forward all of his academic children who had completed their courses and take one by the hand and in Latin he would present his children to the officer who was graduating them. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's leading us into the presence of God. He is saying, in a sense, Heavenly Father, you know that I have done all the work for them. And now I'm coming with them into your presence. Here am I, Father. Welcome me and the children you have given me. Very interesting thing in the history of the church to realize that perhaps the dominant New Testament picture that's been used for the church is the body of Christ. 
I believe we can say quite dogmatically that's not the central New Testament picture of the church. Very simple reason for saying that. There's only one writer in all the New Testament ever calls the church the body of Christ. So it wasn't the ordinary way of thinking about the church. So what was the ordinary way of thinking about the church? The gospel way of thinking about the church is that since Christ has led us to the Father, we have been brought together as family. Here am I and the children you have given me. I suspect those of you who move around from church to church, I don't mean church hopping, but you may be in different parts of the country or different parts of the world, I suspect you would recognize this telltale sign of a real gospel church. It's where people know their Heavenly Father because they've trusted the Savior and so they become family together. So worship is family reunion time. Jesus gathers us into his Father's presence as family. The second thing Jesus does, and uh, I've already hinted at this, is it's Jesus who leads us in our praises. Now you have a wonderful organ and a wonderful organist. Our church has a wonderful organ and a wonderful organist who's been there 40 years. But they are not the worship leaders. The dean is not the worship leader. The canons are not the worship leader. The worship leader where God is truly worshipped is always our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words taken from the 22nd Psalm that the author of Hebrews puts into the mouth of Jesus. Now you know the 22nd Psalm, you'll probably hear it at Easter time. It's the Psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words Christ cited on the cross. We don't always read to the end of the Psalm. This comes from the triumphant part the resurrection and ascension part of that psalm, in which Jesus says these words, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. May I say to you with great love, if you do not sing in a wholehearted way in worship, you have lost the gospel plot. Because Jesus is leading the singing. When you stand with your hymn book and sing, then you imagine, I am sharing this hymn book with none other than the Lord Jesus. And he is leading me in the praises of the Heavenly Father. That's why when you are filled with the Spirit, do you remember in Ephesians 5.18, what does the person filled with the Spirit do? He sings psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, and makes a beautiful melody to the Lord in his heart. It doesn't matter whether you sing well or not. Jesus' voice will cover your bad singing. So Jesus brings us into the presence of the Father as family. He leads us in our praises. And the third thing that the author of Hebrews notes, and this is a very important thing to know, is that it's actually Jesus who preaches the sermon. I hope you have experienced that. I'm sure many of you have experienced that. Look at the words. I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
That's what preaching is. And that's what Jesus does. By the power of the Holy Spirit, when his word is expounded, his sheep hear his voice. Uh, that's one of the reasons why our sermons are just a little bit longer. Because we love hearing the shepherd's voice. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, a very striking way. He says to these Ephesians, who became Christians decades after Jesus had died and raised, he says, now Jesus came and preached peace to you. Now, when did Jesus come to Ephesus? Did Jesus make a post-resurrection secret vision and meet with the Ephesians? No, Jesus came and preached peace to the Ephesians when the Apostle Paul came and preached the gospel to the Ephesians and they heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Surely that's your experience. You've had the Emmaus Road experience, haven't you? And your heart has burned within you as Jesus has talked to you from his word as you've been sitting in the pew and no one else has known the way in which he has been applying his word right into your heart. And you've heard the voice of the Lord Jesus and you've responded to him. He's applied his word in ways no one else could ever, could ever have known how to apply it. And somehow or another, the preacher seems to vanish into the background, not into thin air, but at least into the background, because, you know, the Lord is speaking to you. And this is what he does when he comes and stands among us. So he comes and gathers us as a family. He comes and leads us in our praises. He comes and preaches to us God's word. And whenever he does so, says Hebrews 2, he comes to us to meet our needs. He is able to help those who are being tested. You know, I sometimes wish, thinking about our own congregation, and indeed I sometimes say to our people, I wish every single one of you had the opportunity to preach at least just once for this reason. To be able to stand in this pulpit, to look out upon these people you know and love, to see the extraordinary diversity of circumstances from ecstatic joy to overwhelming tragedy, and to feel as those of us who do preach feel every time we enter the pulpit, how can my little sermon ever minister to all of the needs of all of these people. And here is the answer. If Christ is present, if Christ leads us, if Christ speaks to us, it really doesn't matter to me about what he speaks to me. I know that if he is present, he is all sufficient for all the needs of all of his people. That's what we're asking for whenever we pray, Jesus, be present 
where two or three are gathered in your name. I remember when I was a very young minister, I went to speak to a, a large group of young people in a, in a conference center. I was confident I knew where they would be meeting. It was a Saturday night, and I, I went to the place where I knew they would be meeting. I threw open the doors, and to my complete astonishment, there was standing before me, whirling incense in my face, a man who was a Greek Orthodox minister who seemed to be about ten feet tall, right in front of me. And the incense, as it were, blew right into my face. I'd obviously come to the wrong place. And I immediately closed the door. And as I closed the door, I thought to myself, am I beginning to imagine things? Or is there a priest swinging his censer in that room? I didn't dare to open the doors again, but I've never forgotten the occasion. You know there is a sense in which all of our worship should be just like that. We walk out into the city of Birmingham to our business, to our duties, to our burdens, to our joys, to our responsibilities, to our futures, bearing the burdens of our past, except as we walk out, we walk out thinking, did Jesus meet with me there? Did he gather me as a child of his there? Did he lead me in praises there? Was it Jesus' voice I heard in the preaching of the word? Yes, surely, because I met with Jesus, and whatever my needs may be, he, as Hebrews tells me, is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. That's why the great word of Hebrews is this. So fix your eyes on Jesus. And we used to end our little Sunday school class with these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, my dear friends, are you looking to Jesus? Because he is all of this to all of those who look to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And for the grace of your word. Now let us stand together to receive the benediction of our high priest Jesus Christ. And look to him in faith according to the word of Hebrews to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our beloved Heavenly Father, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the strengthener and the comforter, be with you all this day and forevermore.